Well, it's my privilege to wrap up our uh, First Peter series uh, this morning. And I, as you just saw in the video, I definitely would invite you back for that uh, series. I think it's very timely, very important uh, word in our culture, in our uh, experience of, of people today. Uh, so I think, it's, I think God's going to do great things through that series coming up. You can turn to First Peter chapter 4, uh, and uh, that will... Uh, the first six verses is where we will camp out this morning. This, my message is called Preparing Your Mind to Benefit from Suffering. So I'm not sure if benefit and suffering go together, but uh, scripturally they do. And uh, when I titled that, I thought actually uh, being more, if I was more culturally appropriate, I would have preached that sermon at the beginning of the hockey season. <laughs> A couple of Canucks fans in here. Or I thought, the other thought that came to mind is after listening to Pastor Ray talk about his Vikings that I should have preached the sermon just before the Vikings got taken out of playoffs last weekend <laughs> for his benefit. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I was in downtown uh, Vancouver attending a conference and Pastor Francis Chan was speaking there. And he relayed the story of a trip he had taken to China. And uh, during that trip, he uh, met a pastor uh, there who was, charge, who was in charge of a large underground church network. And that pastor told him, he said, you know, for, uh, there was a season we were underground and then the government kind of freed things up and then we were meeting publicly and then the government had clamped down on us and we had to take our church uh, underground again and we had to meet in, in homes and we had to scatter all over the place. So of course, uh, Francis said, well, you know, how did that go for you? How did that... What did that do to the church? He said it was really good for us, actually, as a church. He said, and it drove us back to our our core values as a church. There's five core values or core tenets of our church that we um, really focused on, and that's what carried us through this season. He said, okay, well, what were they? He said, well, the first one was the word of God. And we couldn't no longer gather for teaching like this, so it really drove us in our smaller groups, meeting in homes, scattered all over the place, to personally and in small groups dig into the Word of God. And so that was really good for us. Said secondly, prayer. Prayer elevated. We, we prayed more frequently, more intensely uh, because of our situation. And so uh, prayer benefited from that. And because we were praying, the third value that just got raised up is an expectation of the miraculous. We began to just expect God to show up, and he did in amazing ways. He showed up again and again, and because of that, we prayed more, and more miracles happened, and so this this pattern of praying and expectation and the miraculous happened over and over. He said, fourthly, each one of us took personal responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. We couldn't come to a large gathering. We couldn't hold large meetings. And so we took that on personally, and so the church grew because everyone would tell other people about who Jesus is and what it means to be in relationship with him. He said, and the fifth one was that we embrace suffering for the glory of God. And Francis Chan stopped, and he said, you embrace suffering as a value in your church? He said, yes. And the church was better for it. So as I heard the story, I was thinking... Okay, how does that work in a Canadian church? We're going to put a poster up in the lobby. You know, our value is suffering. <laughs> Everyone come. 
I thought, that's not going to work very well in Canada. And yet he said, a suffering church is an unstoppable church. So, of course, Francis, why is it unstoppable? He says, well, threats from the government don't matter. If you're willing to suffer, it doesn't matter. And if you're willing to suffer, fear is a non-issue. There's nothing to be afraid of if you're willing to suffer. Loss of privilege does not consume our people because they embrace suffering. So all the things that the government or others would try to do to stop the church, the church says, doesn't matter because we focus on Christ. Now, the reality is today, most of the church or uh, the greatest portion of Christians in history actually live under persecution today, even though it's not happening in Canada. Uh, The majority, the vast majority, or more than ever, I'll put it that way, uh, are being persecuted for their faith today. Uh, Nick Ripkin, who's an author of the book, The Insanity of God, which I would highly recommend to you, uh, put it this way. Suffering is one of God's ordained means for the growth of his church. He brought salvation to the world through Christ, our suffering Savior, and he now spreads salvation in the world through Christians as suffering saints. Now, I know, as I said, suffering is not very Canadian. What I hear much more frequently as a pastor for the last 25 years is, uh, if I'm suffering, God must not love me. Or if I'm suffering, there must not be a God. Because I think God wants me, if God loves me like you say he does, then he wants me to be happy. He wants me to be healthy. You know, he wants me to benefit. And yet, if you pick up the Bible and read it, start in the book of Matthew and go through it, and what you will see very quickly is that Jesus was a suffering savior. Those who claimed his name suffered. Every one of them. All his disciples, it's the regular story of the church in history is that it has been a suffering church. So what does the Bible tell us about suffering? First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It's written to the church in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey today. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So, first point. Suffering frees us from sin. Suffering frees us from sin. How does suffering for your faith free you from sin? Is this some form of, you know, works-based salvation? If you suffer enough, you can sort of trade that in and now you're free from sin? Is that what he's talking about? No. See, Jesus is our model. So Jesus suffered because of his obedience to the Father who told him to preach freedom in Christ through, through Jesus' death and resurrection. That was the good news, that freedom is possible, that eternity is real, and that hope is real. So Jesus suffered because he preached that message. And then Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, so because of what Jesus suffered for obedience to the Father, declaration of the gospel, the instruction is arm yourselves also with the same attitude. To arm is to prepare for battle. That's what that term means when it says arm yourselves. He says with the same attitude as Christ Jesus. 
So the book of Romans chapter 12 tells us that we should put on the mind of Christ. So in other words, we should learn how to think like Jesus thought. We often think we should emulate Jesus, which is true, but often it's mimicking. It's, you know, it's, you know, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Well, you don't know what Jesus would do until you know what Jesus thought. And how did Jesus think? Well, Jesus lived in, for the glory of God, in the obedience of, to God, in the direction of the Spirit. And then he lived that out. So he's saying, arm yourselves with the same attitude. So what are the reasons for that? First of all, you emulate Jesus, who is our model for life and godliness. Live like Jesus lived, under direction of the, of the Spirit and obedience to the Father, which is what that prepares you for. All right, that's the second point. Live in obedience to God, the leading of the Spirit. Thirdly, prepare yourself to be done with sin. Prepare yourself to be done with sin, which is an interesting line. To be finished with sin. Does that mean you'll never sin again? Does that mean that once you've suffered, that part of your life is done? Is that what he's talking about? No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about when you have the attitude of Christ, you want to increasingly walk closer to the Father. You want to increasingly glorify him. Now, the other piece when the reality of sin is there's often a suffering that happens because of our sin or when you're trying to eradicate sin from your life. And often that sin can be emotional, that sin can be intellectual, it can be relational, it can be physical. That is often what happens when we walk through that process. Now, sometimes when someone becomes a Christ follower, God graciously removes an attraction to sin from our lives. I mean, I've heard people say, I became a Christ follower and my desire to do X is gone. I used to be an addict, it's gone. I used to be, you know, consumed with this and it's gone. And that happens sometimes by the graciousness of God. But quite often, it's a struggle to walk away from sin once we've given our lives to Christ. And there's a huge struggle there. And just like if someone is addicted to something, there's a, there can be a physical withdrawal once they want to be clean from that, the same thing can happen on a spiritual, emotional level, is that there's a struggle that happens, there's a suffering that happens in that process. So he says, arm yourselves. There will be a spiritual battle. You give your life to Christ, you say, I want to go in that direction, there will be a battle. Do not be surprised by the battle. That's actually normal. I alluded to the Canucks earlier. If there was an interview uh, by a, you know, a bruising large Canucks uh, player who after a game said, yeah, that game was okay, but you know, the other team kept trying to hit me. They, they kept trying to check me. I was really upset by that. And you'd be listening to that going, well, it's a full contact sport. Like, if you don't want to get hit, go play a non-contact sport. Why are you playing for the Canucks then? Spiritually, it's the same thing. He's saying, expect a battle. Arm yourself for the battle. He's not saying there might be a battle. Arm yourself says it assumes the battle, the battle is on. That's the assumption. If you want to declare your faith, you want to pursue Christ, he is saying, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves to be in the same attitude to focus on Christ because they're on God, because there will be be a battle. And then he says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. What does it mean to be done with sin? 
I think what he's talking about is that when you have the same attitude as Christ, when you say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to move in my, my life in the direction towards you. I've made a statement of declaration that I say, Jesus, come and be the forgiver of my sin. I'm giving my life to you. Come and fill me with your spirit. I'm headed in that direction. And he's saying, as you suffer for your faith, as you walk down that road, as you are working out the suffering because of your sin, you get to the place when you say, I am so sick of that sin, I am done with it. I no longer want that to have a hold on my life. I am finished with it. You know when you're at that place? I'll tell you, when you're at that place, when you're done with sin, when you're no longer just complaining about the impact it has on you. So when, when, when we're preoccupied with the, miserable, the misery we are in because of sin, we're not done with sin yet. We're done with sin when we say, God, I will do whatever it takes to get rid of this sin. That's actually true repentance. Prior to that, it's remorse. Remorse is like um, you get caught uh, stealing something at the grocery store. Remorse is, I'm sorry I got caught. Right? Remorse is, I feel lousy because I got caught. So the answer to that is, I shouldn't have got caught. Right? The answer isn't, I did something wrong. The answer is, I got caught. Shoot, next time I won't get caught. That's remorse. Repentance says, I want to turn the other way, and I will do whatever it takes to make it right. God, I'm coming before you clean. Is there somebody I need to talk to? Is there somebody I need to walk? Who needs to walk with me? I had someone say to me, you know, I'm stuck in the sin and I want to get out of it. And, and I repent, but I get stuck again. And, uh, and I said, so who have you told about it? Well, no one. Because I don't feel comfortable. I said, if you actually want to get out of the sin, right? Book of James says, confess your sins one to another so you can be healed. That is so that you can actually receive the spiritual healing first and foremost because when you confess to a brother or to a sister, they walk with you. Someone's praying for you. There's a sense of positive accountability. There's someone you can call. You're saying, I will do whatever it takes to make it right. In any um, 12-step program, there comes to a place where you confess your sins in the program. Alcoholics Anonymous or any of those because they know that con- unless there's confession, the healing won't happen. That's why they put it in. It actually is, comes from scripture. So when you're done with sin, you're finished. You're saying no more. Now the problem is for some people, they want to play in both worlds. They tasted of God, but they still want to taste a little more of sin. It's like I'm not done playing with fire, and I think I can play without, without really getting burned. So I want to play a little more. Or maybe you think your testimony isn't good enough or something. Right? So we play in these two worlds. I think there is no more miserable place to be, and I'll say this from my own experience, especially as a young adult, to say I've tasted of God, I've got experience with God, and I want some of that, but I'm still tantalized by this sin. And so when I'm around these friends, I pretend I don't know God. And when I'm with with these friends, I never tell them what's happening over here. So you're actually miserable in both places. Church is no fun, God's no fun, and sin's no fun. It's just no fun, basically. That's the worst place to be, is with one foot in both worlds. And God is saying, and Peter's saying here, no more hiding, no more pretense, no more double life. Be done with sin. Be finished with it. Be sick of it. Get rid of it. That's the invitation. 
Because your conscience has been awakened. And the primary context that it's happening in here is the first century where the culture is keeping, keeps on inviting people back into sin, back into what was going on in that day, which we'll get into in a minute. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, the persecution stuff, not sure that's really that real. Well, we have people here among us who some were persecuted as children, like people like my parents' age who were persecuted for their faith. My grandfathers were both taken away because of their faith. So it's a very real experience for my parents, and there's others here who had that experience as children. There's others here, you've had the experience of persecution for your faith from the country you've come from. There's others here who have had the the experience of persecution and ostracization for your faith because your friends have left you here, or perhaps you come from a, a background where when you became a Christ follower, your family said, you're dead to me. So this is actually more Canadian than you might think it is this reality. But what happens when you say, Jesus, I'm all yours. Jesus, I'm sick of sin. I'm armoring myself with that attitude. Verse two says, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, when we read evil human desires, we think, well, we're not diabolical. I'm not you know, planning to murder somebody. In this context, evil is anything that takes you away from God. Anything that takes you away from God is actually evil. It's not the degree to which something is evil. It's the direction it's heading in. That's the reality. So the second major point is suffering increases our desire to live for God. Suffering, why does it do that? Why does it increase our desire? Because suffering will eradicate sin from our lives. It clarifies our thinking. It grows our faith. It increases our conviction. It helps bring our priorities in line with Christ. It takes us closer in heart and mind to who Jesus is and how he thinks, as we were told to do. It increases our focus on God's will. I think what it actually do, because it rec- we, get, we increasingly recognize sin for what it is, it's the application of the most graph- one of the most graphic pictures in Scripture I know about sin, which is Proverbs 26, verse 11. It's, it's that we no longer want to return to our sin like a dog returning to its vomit. That's the picture in Proverbs 26. Because we see sin for what it is. And we bring alignment. But that very alignment can bring persecution for us today in all kinds of ways. Very simple example. One of my friends was in town this week. Reminded me of this story. Um, And uh, he used to be an accountant, a a traveling uh, sales rep, basically. An account rep. And so in that business, when you travel, you have a territory. You typically... uh, Crew expenses, and then at the end of the month, you're handing your expenses and you get reimbursed. So he does that, and it's a pretty healthy expense account. Um, and he, he sends it in, and he does this a few times. And at one point, his, uh, his boss calls him up and says, uh, Got your expenses. Are you sure they're right? Yeah, I'm exactly sure they're right. Are you positive? Yes, I'm positive. Do you think they might be too low? He goes, No, no, I'm pretty sure they're right. Yeah, you're sure they're not too low? Because all the other account reps, their expenses are higher. You see, they had a a budget piece for their expenses, uh, which was healthy. And he would put in exactly what he used. Others would always max out the account. 
So he goes, so the supervisor says, well, you know, if you keep putting in the numbers you're putting in and you're pretty consistent in what you're spending a month, you're going to make all the other account reps look bad. So in other words, they're most likely being fraudulent in what they're handing in. And because you're not, that gap is showing up every week in our reports. So how about if you put in a bigger bill so that they don't look bad? Nope, not my problem. That's their problem. Probably to the next coffee break. Then it probably became a bit of his problem. But he said, that's okay, it doesn't matter. Because before God, he said, no, this is what I want. I got to honor my father, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be honest in what I hand in. Very simple example, but it was community pressure going, hey, line up like us, live like us, compromise yourself like us. See, this stuff shows up in very small ways. Let me jump significantly thinking of the next series we have going on. If you follow God's plan for your, se- for your sex life, for a man and a woman inside marriage, you will be mocked and ridiculed by society. If you speak against politically correct sexuality, you will be labeled as intolerant, unaccepting, unloving, and bigoted. If you do not support a woman's right over her own body because it harms an unborn life, you're told you're against women, that you hate women. If, if we disagree with our current government's use of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to violate our freedom of conscience and our freedom of religion, we're told by our Prime Minister that we're un-Canadian, which is what he recently said. Now, that's just our Canadian reality right now. This is nothing new, friends. This is not unique because it's 2018 in Canada. This has been going on for centuries. Is it disappointing? Yes. Should we be in, freedom, in favor of freedom of religion for all? Yes. But if you look at the first century, Christians or Christ followers were called uh, killjoys because they thought to be depressing people because their lives lack pleasure. What does that mean in the first century, the people Peter is writing to? Well, pleasure really meant uh, participation in Roman entertainment. The three big things that they did there was uh, theater, and theater was known for its uh, sexually explicit performances, um, the chariot races, and gladiators. So it's the first century version of sex, violence, and gambling, basically. It's Vegas 2,000 years ago. There you go. And the other piece that was interesting is that they were everyone was supposed to burn incense in honor of the emperor. And somehow people knew, I guess, if you did or didn't, because they would get mad at you if you didn't, because you were considered a poor citizen uh, if you did not participate in attending these events or burn incense uh, to the emperor. In fact, you were described as haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. And enough went on that your neighbors, I guess, knew if you were participating or not. And they would give you a hard time. So if you didn't do those things, you're swimming upstream against the culture and being condemned for it because of your faith. If we hold to the sanctity of life, freedom of religion for all in Canada, you're swimming against the culture in our current day. So Peter is exhorting his readers to be prepared to accept unjust suffering just as Jesus did, by arming themselves with the same mental disposition, the same attitude, the same perspective that Jesus did. And when you do that, it galvanizes your face. It prioritizes your life around Christ and obeying him and following him. 
And often obedience can lead to suffering. Now, I know it's not a popular message in uh, 21st century North America. In fact, if you turned on your TV this afternoon, I'm sure you could find a, some preacher talking about how God wants you to be wealthy and God wants you to be happy and all those things. It's like God is a um, supernatural vending machine of some sort. Does God love you? Absolutely. Does God want your best? There is no doubt about it. But friends, God is much more concerned with your spiritual development than with your personal comfort. God knows comfort leads to conformity and conformity leads us away from God. It leads us to destruction. It leads us to death. And he loves us too much to let us go there. Far too much. Peter's readers were faced with the choice of taking the easy road, going along with the values and practices and expectations of, their, of society or obeying God and then suffering the consequences and criticisms and condemnation from their neighbors. Their willingness to suffer, suffer demonstrates their resolve to be done with sin. That's the reality. Just like Jesus who was tempted to sin and never did and we're told Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 learned obedience from what he suffered and when I read that it just tells me quite simply that probably you and I need to learn the same thing because if Jesus learned greater obedience through suffering as Hebrews tells us then I would say the same would be true for us. The same would be true for us. Jesus chose to obey his father and suffer the consequences Peter is telling his readers to make the same choice. And every time we decide to follow Jesus, you win another battle with the enemy. Your faith grows. You defeat human desire. You give glory to God. And you live with a greater sense of hope because suffering does bring hope and point us to hope. Third point is suffering focuses our lives on the future rather than on the past. So when I was a child... uh, I grew up in the era where in school they would talk about uh, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after death. Now I think they talk about common era as a marker in history. Well, I realized in my own life I had B.C. and A.D. There was my season before Christ and there was after death, except the death wasn't referring to Jesus' death as my death. I needed to die so I could have life with him. So there's a girl I went to high school with. Her name was Jenny. And I, li- I went to a small high school. There were 60 kids per grade. So even if you didn't hang out together, you, you would kind of know each other. Never saw Jenny again after high school. But when I was in my mid-20s, I worked for an organization uh, by the name of Youth for Christ. Worked with high school kids. And I found out one of the people I worked with was a roommate to Jenny. So one day my name came up in their conversation in their house. And uh, Jenny's trying to figure out if the Willie that her roommate works with is the same as the one she went to high school with. So she's asking all kinds of questions and finally she figured out, yeah, it's the same guy. And then Jenny had one comment after that. There must be a God. (laughs) That's all you need to know about my high school. (laughs) Don't have to tell you anymore. There was a BC and an AD in my life. And there was a point where my life got focused more on Christ. But one of the things that then happened also was there was a suffering that refined my life because of my decision to follow Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter, three, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Peter's saying you've wasted enough time living that way. Don't waste any more time living that way. So in my life, when I went from BC to AD, what happened is I did lose a bunch of my friends. The things they were interested in, the things they wanted me to be a part of, the thing they would, things they gave me grief for if I wasn't a part of them are things that I increasingly realized, I don't want to do that anymore. There is no fun there. What I thought was fun isn't fun. You know, when your friends are getting drunk together and you realize that people aren't laughing with you, they're laughing at you. You're their entertainment. Not because they like you so much, but because you're being silly. And I watched all that happen. I went, I am so done with that. I'm so finished with that. I've wasted enough of my life doing that. And if that means that I have to walk away from my friends, so be it. And if that means I have to be ridiculed by them, so be it. Because it's not worth going back there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 Peter describes it this way. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. And those desires can be, I want my friends. It's not just necessarily the sin itself. It's I want the package that comes with it because it's tough being on my own. So don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, and I would add, but you know better now. Because of Jesus. So the first five things that are talked about here, the debauchery and lust and drunkenness, those things in Peter's day were happening publicly. These were public festivals. Right? Large public festivals that everyone's a part of. And they must have happened on a scale, almost like you think about a block party happening, where someone knows, oh, house number three, they're not at the party. Because they got con- condemned for not coming to the party. So people knew they weren't coming. But these are the activities of the parties that were going on and the festivals that were going on in Peter's day and to the Christ followers that he's writing to. He's saying, you don't need to be part of that anymore. You can live with the condemnation for not being part of that because of all the good things it will bring you and it'll focus your life on the future and what God has for you. The last one that he's talking about is idolatry. So in Peter's day and age, as long as you worship multiple gods, everyone was fine. They didn't care which god you worshiped. They were all fine with it. But as soon as Christianity came along, which was a monotheistic religion, one God and only one God, and saying Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only God, and he is the only way to have your sins forgiven. He is the only way to be filled with the Spirit of God. He is the only way to have your eternity secure. As soon as they said he is the only way, then they were in trouble. Same issue then, same issue today. People are fine if you want to believe in multiple gods today. But as soon as you name the, utter the name of Christ and say, he is the one, that's where the trouble begins. And that's why Peter also says, because of this, you also have a longing. Suffering creates a longing for Jesus' return. Suffering creates a longing for Jesus' return. Why is there longing? Verse 5, because they will, be given a, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter teaches that judgment is for everyone. If I believe in judgment or not, doesn't matter. The point is God will judge. If something is true, it's true, whether I believe in it or not. And he's saying it's true. And that creates hope because people who are living in injustice long for there to be justice. 
That's true in our world today. When we look around the world and we see injustice, we get so frustrated. Or we look at our legal system and we say, I wish we had a justice system instead of just a legal system. Why are these people getting off for doing this terrible thing so quickly? Everyone longs for justice, but you only get justice if there actually is a standard of justice. And that comes from God. Now, one of the issues with judgment is if you're old, if you're old like me, you remember days when there maybe was the church was only talking about judgment. And so people say, well, I don't want to talk about that anymore because that was my childhood and I don't want to go back to that. And in our culture today, we don't want to talk about judgment because as soon as you judge anyone for anything, now you're intolerant and you're a bigot. So everyone said, well, we don't want to talk about that. I'd say, well, the answer is not, to talk, is not avoidance. The answer is let's actually get a biblical perspective on it. That's actually, I think, the answer to the problem. Because we all want justice. And the reality, more, the more that people are suffering, the more they want justice. The more they long for justice. And if you go to, to parts of the world where people are suffering horribly, they long for Christ to return soon. Because they want justice. And Peter focuses on the fact that this isn't about moralism, this is about God's holy standard and that all of us have fallen short of that standard and that it's through Christ that we are accepted in him, not because of anything we have done, but because everything he has done. And so if you live in that relationship, there is nothing ever to fear except, not except, uh, but we actually live in anticipation of the return of Christ because justice will rule once and for all and all wrongs will be, will be made right, all suffering will end both uh, for persecution for the gospel, but also all physical suffering and everything will be made right. And that will be an amazing day. That's what he focuses us towards and that's why there is a longing that suffering creates for Christ to return. But in the meantime, Jesus commissions us to live out the mission that he gave us and he, and he was an example of. So that he was the model for mission in his incarnation. He humbled himself to walk among us. He showed us the cost of the mission in going to the cross. He gave us the mandate for mission and the authority through his death and his resurrection. He gave us the incentive for mission uh, is the exaltation of Christ, the glory of God. And the power for mission comes in the gifts of the Spirit and the urgency for mission comes in the second coming of Christ. And I know it gives me an urgency to let people know who Jesus is. And that's why we preach, which is verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in the spirit. That passage is telling us the fact that the gospel needs to be preached to everyone in this world. And there's a, human, there's a judgment for human behavior, but our, the most important one is actually the spiritual judgment that comes from God. And for those who are in Christ, there is no judgment. Because you will be judged fairly. And he says, you are my child. I declare you to be good enough. Not because of anything you have done, as I said earlier, but because everything he has done. That is the glory of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. And we cannot let our desire for comfort draw us into conformity with the voices around us. Lies that, that promote self-gratification and say, that's good, that's what you should be about, or that sexuality is purely for play, that anything that limits sexual expression and personal preference is bad, that God is a killjoy and Jesus' death is unnecessary for personal salvation, 
that judgment is bad and that this world is all that, that there is and that the prison of sin is better than freedom in Christ. We're told those lies all the time. And that's what they are. I think Satan's greatest tool is to try and create lie, is to lie to us and to try and create fear. And he tell, tells us, tries to sell us the same lie he gave to Adam and Eve. You know better than God does. God's holding out secrets from you. You are going to miss out. You think that the fear of missing out is a millennial thing? Satan tried to sell the same message to Adam and Eve in the garden. He tries to tell you that you're going to miss out on something if you don't go and play with sin. If you don't live in a self-absorbed world. He says, that's what's for you. That's better. Author Nick Ripkin again goes back to the lies that Satan tries to whisper into our ears to create fear. Lies like, is this task that you've been given something you can actually do? Have you heard the call call to obedience correctly? Is this obedience worth your life? Could this all be done some other way? Is there a way to accomplish the task without suffering and persecution? Are you certain that this is the path you should take? What about your family? What about your children? Will you do what you've been called to do no matter what? What does he whisper into your heart and mind? Ripkin writes, he whispers fear. Fear is the greatest tool uh, that you will ever give Satan is your fear. The greatest thing you can battle against Satan is to overcome your fear by giving your life to Christ and walking in intimacy with him. Those who live in persecuted countries tell us that you in the non-persecuted countries must never give up in freedom what we in the persecuted countries will never give up, give up under persecution. And that is our witness to the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's where hope comes from. That's where new life not only begins, but resides. That is the place where sin is done when we put on the, the, the mind of Christ. And that is the place, friends, where freedom lives. And that's his invitation for us. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. I want to pray particularly for those um, who are struggling with sin this morning. You're caught, either you're just living in sin, you've never given your life to Christ, or you're caught with one foot in both worlds, or something you're just in that, uh, that real struggle. And, uh, and perhaps you're in that place this morning where you're saying, okay, I am done with sin. That's it. That's enough. I want to give it to Christ. I want to call in others to walk with me. And uh, I want to pray particularly for you. And after I've done that, If you haven't ever given your life to Christ, you can pray quietly with me and I'll lead you through a prayer uh, to do that. Father, I want to thank you uh, for this day. I want to thank you for every person you've brought here. I know this message um, can cause squirming in our hearts. I understand that. There's great many seasons where it did that in mine. And Father, I thank you that you keep calling and you keep working, you keep inviting, you keep loving. And I praise you for that, Father. I know you love every person here. You died for every person here and you call them to be your own. Father, for those who have responded but are still struggling with sin, I pray that even in this moment they would give that sin to you. They would say, I am done with sin. I am sick of this. I want to live for the future, not get stuck in my past. And Father, I pray that as they give that to you, they also give their desires and their will to you and to say, I will do whatever it takes. Father, I pray for the courage to talk to another person, a friend, a counselor, a pastor, to walk with them towards freedom. And Father, for those who don't know you, 
uh, I just want to pray for them and invite, I invite you if you want to give your life to Christ to just pray with me. Jesus, I give my life to you. I thank you for dying on the cross uh, for my life, for paying the price for my sins. Please forgive my sins. Please come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and be my leader to direct me. Be my friend to walk with me. Be my guide. Fill me with your spirit to give me strength, Lord. Surround me with community to live the way you've created and called me to live. I am yours and you are mine. In your name I pray, amen. Amen.